Yo, we're live. Welcome, everybody. Good, what's good, what's good? How's everybody doing today? We're all here, I hope. Week? Yep. It's, yeah, it's been a long week. Yeah. Yep. Um, hope everybody's doing okay at home. Hope the quarantine's going well. We're just getting a couple things finishing off. Um, I am glad everybody's here again. We got a lot of cool shit to talk about. Um, first things first, we're going to talk about what's going on in Lebanon and Beirut. We're going to do an update. We have a little video for you, Jake, and if you want to take that over. Yeah, um, the video is actually from a reporter called Aaron Mate, works for Grey uh, Zone News. Um, it's kind of a, an update on the what caused, not just what caused um, this explosion to happen, but I guess the, the systems that allowed it to happen in the first place. Um, video is like five minutes or so, so we'll go ahead and play some and then talk about it after. Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Mate. The massive explosion in Beirut has left a country that was already in crisis facing a new calamity. Joining me from Beirut is Rania Masri, a lecturer and activist. Rania, thank you for joining. First, let me just ask you to talk about how you're doing and what you're seeing around you. Um, you know, it's hard. Well, first, thank you, Aaron, for, for this uh, time. It's really hard for me to say I'm fine. I'm, I'm safe. And, and folks that I know are also safe, but none of us are really fine. We, we're either in shock or feeling a great deal of outrage over this catastrophe that was man-made. It's, it's not a hurricane that has hit us. It's not a natural earthquake, nor is it an act of war committed by an enemy. It is specifically caused by our own criminal negligence. And by our, I mean our leaders here in the country. Um, so that, that's how we're doing. Um, as for the, the state of, of the city or, or where I was during the blast, I mean, I was home. Um, my, my home is around five kilometers away from the epicenter of the explosion. It felt first like an earthquake. And then a minute or two later, the sonic boom hit and uh, the, the windows just exploded open. They, they, they didn't shatter, but just all the doors in the apartment, the windows, they just burst open. And I happen to be extremely fortunate. Other buildings around me, their glass shattered. Other buildings, a few neighborhoods down, um, completely fell apart. We have around 25% of um, the capital has been decimated. 300,000 people have been rendered homeless. That's the U.S. equivalent of around 14 million Americans. 300,000 5,000 wounded. Um, approximately 135 killed that we know of so far, and that is only, you know, the, the human loss. Um, so yes, all of this caused by one massive explosion of 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. You mentioned uh, political corruption Jesus. and incompetence being a cause of this. Can you talk more about what you see as the, or who you see as the major culprits here? Well, let, let's backtrack so that people know actually what, what happened. So in September 2013, there was a ship that arrived at the Lebanese port. And it was one of many ships where um, the owner decides to dock the ship and not pay for his workers and leaves the ship. And so then workers are held hostage. And this happens in 
unfortunately, all too often by, by lots of uh, large ships. So in this case, um, lawyers came and they were able to release the workers, but the, 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 the package of what was on the ship remained there. So since 2013, so that's more than six years, we've had 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate just sitting in a warehouse on the port in improper storage, uh, in very humid storage with lights, with electricity all around it. Successive individuals knew of the danger of this. More than that, my grudge. Or did insufficient <laughs> actions to protect the city. Kind of seems and like this is bound to happen. Not just about the managers yeah, uh, and, the yeah. and the customs, but the court officials that knew and the ministers that, that are responsible for what is happening on the port, both the Minister of Trade, the Minister of Finance, the Minister of Social Work, and so on and so forth. We can go ahead and pause it there for right now. 2,750 tons. Yeah, she, she keeps going on. She goes on to uh, talk more about how um, it's, it's also other countries that are responsible for it, too, because all those leaders she's talking about, obviously, you know, have foreign connections, like the finance leader of Lebanon, obviously has connections to, you know, President Macron, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they knew about this. So, and they knew, obviously, it's a danger. And something I have personally looked up is that most of the, like, largest accidental explosions or non-nuclear explosions are all ammonium nitrate. Really? Yeah, including, including one uh, here that happened in Texas in the 1940s, and it's supposed to be our, our worst industrial disaster ever. Like, it blew up a whole port in the Gulf back in the 40s. Goddamn. But yeah, I, I guess I guess that's going to be kind of our theme for the night, uh, among other things, is just general negligence cause, is going to cause has caused us, you know, so many problems that we don't need to have from climate problems to stuff like this, like literal bombs going off in our capital cities. Yeah. From stuff we've known, you know, you know, that explodes and can't be it's held in a building with all these electric lights and stuff. Yeah, it's just they knew it was going to happen. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And so, um, you want to just continue with current events? We want to get. Yeah, yeah. Current... We just wanted to touch on that because I mean, yeah, obviously sad, but and we also just talked about it last pod. Yeah, yeah. Just to, give to keep everybody updated. Recently. So uh, next, we're going to talk about, as probably everybody heard, um, Kamala Harris is now on the. Biden ticket for the vice president of the United States, which Let's is um, pretty hilarious. Seeing that after all of these um, police protests that we decided to make a, a cop VP, which is fucking hilarious. So as you can see on the screen here, we have a little article from The Hill. And um, it also has the latest uh, attack ad from the Trump campaign. The um, Which you could see coming from a mile oh, yeah. away. Like there's just there's so much there's so much juice and sauce in attacking the, specifically the Biden the Biden Harris ticket. Yeah, I mean, as as the video is gonna point out, like they really are the perfect duo. Oh, um, yeah, you can play the video. Yeah, let's go ahead and get the video started. Harris ran for president by rushing to the radical left, embracing Bernie's plan for socialized medicine, calling for trillions in new taxes, attacking Joe Biden for racist policies. Voters rejected Harris. They smartly spotted a phony, but not Joe Biden. He's not that smart. <laughs> Biden calls himself a transition candidate. 
He is handing over the reins to Kamala. He's a transgender. Embrace the right. <laughs> Slow Joe and phony <laughs> Perfect together. Wrong for America. I, yeah. I can't stress this enough. I wish no, like for no other thing than for Kamala to be some deep agent of the left. Like yeah, only. all the all the fiber my being wishes that all of these like Republican talking points were true. Like, like if Obama was actually like this Islamist Marxist fucking like it, like person that they always describe him as. Like, oh yeah, if only it was that. That'd be amazing. So he'd be so much better off. It's interesting though, because I mean, we all definitely saw the Kamala pick coming like a, while, a long time ago. We thought, okay, that's probably the top option. Oh yeah, I, but I now mean, it's it's yeah. even crazier to think. Because now the last two months have just been police brutality protests. And now Joe Biden's going to pick someone that's like synonymously known amongst everyone as the right. cop. Well, yeah, know? literally like one of her nicknames is Cop Mala. Like, yeah. So, I mean, uh, now it's like one of the worst picks. You, it was then too, obviously bad. But given the current moment, it's like one of the worst picks you could imagine. Yeah, like the person you quoted themselves as like top cop in the biggest state kind of like. Who laughed about fucking uh, smoking weed in high school yeah. after like arresting so many people for weed charges? It, like, I mean, the uh, one the one benefit Biden does get is he gets the tenacity of K Hive behind him because uh, fucking the K Hive is strong. Yeah, so at least Biden has some kind of online, you know, military now. Yeah, before but, just have you seen all those hard. articles coming out where they're like, oh, like you know, Kamala right. has his online army. Yeah, like. Uh, just completely flipping the air, like before, Bernie Bros. Oh, so bad. They're they're evil and they just attack bully people. But bully people as, online, yeah. As soon as we get this fucking, as soon as we get this insane like army of fucking Kamala Harris supporters, you're like, let's go. Yeah, which shows they had nothing to do. It's all you know, the idea. They're fine with neolibs bullying people. It's all no politics. Yeah, playing for their team. Not understanding how to excite their base, not understanding the concept of power. Yeah, and, and Trump is obviously going to capitalize on this further with some, uh, I'm sure, some amazing sure. ads. Yeah. yeah. The Magid Shuds are strong on the internet. I mean, from Biden, it's such a weak pick, too, because, like, not that he had it in the bag, but you can definitely see him lose. Like, what states does he lock in because of this, you know? Exactly. What does like, he gain? There's no, there's no battleground states where, like, the the Biden Harris ticket is strategic at all. Yeah, he's he, gonna he, he's he's gonna get his for sure. Blue states like California, shit like that. Yeah, now with Kamala, he's won the the crazy battleground state of California. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Delaware, um, fucking. Let's jump on Trump though, because Trump's been fucking executing people in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, this is actually a pretty crazy yeah. uh, segment here. So if you yeah. want to pull the article up. This was a bit ago, but we'll let's bring it up. Um, it's not only is it current, but it's just it's 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 that the death penalty in itself is very important. Yeah, uh, blood in the water. Disregarding the virus and victims' families, Trump rushes to execute as many people as possible. Uh, it was getting close to midnight at the Ford dealership on Route 41 in Terre Haute, uh, Indiana, and there was no word yet on the execution. Half a dozen people sat hunched over their cell phones next to a hulking gray pickup truck, awash in the fluorescent lights flooding the lot. It was Monday night, July 13th, and Daniel Lewis Lee scheduled to die at 4 p.m. It would be the first federal execution in 17 years, 
the last time the U.S. government restarted executions after a long pause, uh, last killing Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh uh, in a newly constructed death chamber in 2001. Throngs of protesters and national press overwhelmed the city of 60,000. But this was a significantly smaller event, uh, not, not to mention also, you know, COVID's going on. Uh, some 20 protesters had gathered at the intersection in front of the dealership early that day. The street that cuts across Route 41 Spring Hill Drive leads straight to the entrance of USP Terre Haute, a sprawling supermax prison across from a Dollar General. Fitting. That, that's, that's as American as it gets. <laughs> um, the demonstration included a contingent of Catholic nuns, uh, Sisters of Providence from the nearby St. Mary of the Woods congregation. Uh, they held signs prompting, honking, waves, and the occasional expletive from passing cars. What about the victims, one woman yelled. But nearly eight hours later, the intersection was quiet. Most of the protesters had gone home. Around 11 p.m., the son of the owner stopped by the lot. He'd gotten a call about vandals, which proved unfounded. The dealership people have been really cool, said Abe Bonowitz of Death Penalty Action, as the man drove off. The nuns buy their cars here, he added. Uh, we'll skip further down to um, uh, around 11.40 p.m., if we can get to there. Um, around 11.40 p.m., news finally reached the parking lot. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit had ruled against the Trump administration, leaving the preliminary injunction in place. The court set an expedited, uh, expedited briefi- briefing scheduled to resolve questions over the execution protocol toward the end of the month. It appeared that all three executions would remain on hold. Uh, by midnight, Bonowitz had po- posted a celebratory video on Facebook and started driving back home. But at 2 a.m., an unexpected ruling came from the Supreme Court. In a 5-4 decision, the justice vacated the stay. Please make your way back to the media center. A Bureau of Prison staffer texted a reporter with the Indianapolis Star who was at a motel near the prison. We will be resuming the execution at approximately 4 a.m. As the sun came up over the prison, lawyers on both sides were still fighting over Lee's life. In a small cramped room, the media witnesses sat for hours in plastic chairs, facing two windows covered with shades. We could hear birds chirping outside and occasionally muffled bits of conversations from other rooms in the building, built specifically to carry out executions. At 7.46 a.m., the shades finally opened, revealing Lee on the gurney, lying under a blue sheet. Um, So, yeah, um, pretty disgusting that all these people were out there protesting and in between all these appeals happening and them leaving the protest site, um, you know, the Supreme Court comes back, vacates everything, and they're like, let's do it. Let's go. Let's execute people. Let's spend money on executing people. Right now, amidst a pandemic, too, which is absolutely insane to spend money on killing people. Yeah. Um, we actually have another article to bring up that uh, Ian wants to talk about on that. Yeah. So I thought this was really important. Um, it's, it's a little old, but the, uh, the statistic still holds true uh, from the National Academy of Science. So there is a 4% chance that the person on the death penalty or the, per- like the death row uh, inmates uh, are innocent. And I believe the actual execution rate is around 1%. So 1% of the time, that's one out of 100 people getting executed, is the wrong person. Completely innocent. And I think that, that, in, that on its own is just enough to completely give you the death penalty. Just not right. only to have 
four out of a hundred people be on death row awaiting their death, sitting there day in and day out, night after night, contemplating how they're gonna die soon. And running up way more money than exactly running up prison. Exactly. Not only that, but one percent of the time, somebody is going to die that is completely innocent. And I think that is bad shit crazy should absolutely be ended as soon as possible all 50 states federally fuck that state's rights shit we need to completely get rid of the death penalty it's disgusting it's barbaric and it leads to one out of a hundred people on death row dying every like every time something like yeah it's it's look look what they're using that that privilege for right now is you know trump one of the worst you know an awful president, one of the worst we've had, is out there just executing people when we, you know, we need money for all kinds of stuff: PPE, um, other masks, um, tests, financial aid, tests. Yeah, but instead we're executing people. We can use that money for unemployment instead of fucking taking yeah. it from FEMA during a hurricane season. Oh yeah, yeah. Like there, there's so much that money could go to that we're just wasting it on and uh, on executions, on killing people. Uh, yeah. And, one percent of the time that person is innocent that person has done nothing wrong and we don't hear anything about it nobody ever hears anything Uh, and it's 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 really disgusting um and keeping on the topic of cops i think um we should transition into something that recently like very recently just happened um the video that we all saw on twitter in santa clarita Clarita, uh where young men were being attacked by a homeless person and Shout out they, to Caesar, by the way, for yeah. sending me this. Shout out to Caesar. Um, they got a call from a witness saying that these young men were being attacked by like a homeless man, and police arrived on scene and proceeded to point their weapons immediately. Point their weapons immediately at the people that were being attacked. Um, of course, black and brown children, very cop-like. So let's go ahead and get started in the video, and then uh, we can talk about it after. It's very short. Put your guns down. Don't tell you think that guy is. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Guys, do not put your hands up. Put your hands up. Put your hands up. I'm the manager here at Buffalo Wild Wings. They don't care because they black. They don't care because they black. They don't care because they black. I'm the manager. That was going to help. Yeah. I'm the manager of Buffalo Wild Wings. One that called you. Well, I got three guns on them. Yeah, like, listen. Teenagers? Yeah. I'm the one that called you. It's not them. And they're just gunned up. Yeah, not not changing their attitude at all. That's what, five, five cops there? Hey, they don't care because they black. They don't give a fuck. They don't care because they, they don't care because they black. Because they black. They don't care. Because they black. That's why. Yeah, how dismissive they're being. They they yeah, you, you gotta love. They're drinking alcohol as an excuse to pull guns out on them. Yeah. 
If anything, that's even less of a reason to have your gun out because they're intoxicated, possibly. Yeah, they might, you know, react differently than they normally would if sober. Exactly. It's completely unnecessary for them to have their guns drawn. For this, yeah, even the people like, that are around. The situation. Like, yeah, nobody wants to. No, One of the first not. things that was said to the police was, I called, it's not them, and they still. Right. And not even just this situation, but any situation, it's just, why have your guns drawn? What a night! What a night! Some bullshit, man! Yeah, act like they just found America's most wanted. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. That guy comes out of his fucking car, AR-15, drawn out, aimed down sight, just ready to blast. That these guys, with their hands up, facing, like, back at them. Say, was it said? Was it said that they were there because they were uh, drinking, like publicly, like out and about? Or that was at least the the police officer's excuse when they're there. Because yeah, I heard that, and but that still gives no reason to be drawing weapons on these people. Like, yeah. There's... No, not at all. And especially when, especially when told, "I'm the one who called. It is not them. Put your guns away. There's no reason to have your guns out." And they're still just in this almost militant stance. Guns ready, on, yeah. on like on like kids, dude. And even, kudos even to all the, the bystanders. The yeah, everyone except for the cops in that video handled it to the T. Like they did as good as they could. Oh yeah, it's such a stressful situation. Yeah, seriously, having like, having just armed fucking pigs, <laughs> just <laughs> guns out, ready to blast you, ready to light up the whole scene, and then just say, "Oh, well, my life felt threatened. I had to do it." Yeah, and even with that guy with the giant like AR hiding behind the door, as if yeah, he's behind the door, as, yeah, like, like taking as if cover fire like military back. style. It's, yeah. it's it's crazy. It's ridiculous. And all presumably off of a a public you know drinking call, which if we let's pull up our next article has to do with that. It was a recent Jacobin article talking about um, you know giving us our rightful freedom to drink in public like every other fucking country does. Instead of treating us like children, where we're not allowed to drink, um, right. let me bring up on my screen the uh, article real quick. Uh, so socialists fought for your, your right. This is going to talk about um, the socialist angle first. Um, to understand why our public drinking laws are so repressive, we have to go back to the American movement to ban booze. From its origins, the prohibition movement was an, uh, animated by a puritanical spirit. Uh, the late 19th century saw temperance activists, many motivated by strict religious codes, push for total abstinence regarding consumption of alcohol, considering it a personal sin. Uh, religious revivalists of the time saw the movement as an opening to secure a level of political legitimacy. Uh, as Jane Monroe writes in uh, Hellfire Nation, uh, prohibition offered them their one link to national authority, the one public commitment to resisting moral decay. <laughs> Uh, that attitude uh, percolated up into legal rulings, such as the 1887 Supreme Court decision in Mugler versus Kansas that claimed public morals may be endangered by the general use of intoxicating drinks and that the idleness, disorder, pauperism and crime existing in the country are, in some degree, traceable to this evil. And that's a mindset that ha even post-prohibition has not left the conservative mindset too of course not because there's this immediate association with public drinking 
or even with people that aren't public drinking, just, you know, homeless or uh, those out in the streets, that that's of you know, poverty and public drinking are, are linked as, mm-hmm. you know. Um, One of the first examples people like that give when you say public drinking, they're like, oh, you mean those yeah. cracked out homeless people that are fucking pounding alcohol, fucking passed out outside of a fucking like 99 cent store? It's like... If we could scroll down to the, the paragraph that says uh, in 1932... What, what, can you finish that thought? You know, sorry, I didn't mean Oh, yeah. Uh, like, it's just, it's just ridiculous to me that, like, when people see things like that, like, people out on the street passed out, reeking of alcohol and stuff, they don't, th- they don't think, how did this person get here? How can we as a society help this person? It's, look at this passed out bum. Look at this drunk fucking, like, idiot, et cetera, et cetera. There, right. there's, there's no empathy and sympathy for these people. Right. And that, that was as far as I was going to go with it. But, yeah, we can get back into the article. Yes, going back, um, in, in 1932, the Socialist Party voted 3-1 to one to add to its official platform, a plank reading, a repeal the 18th Amendment and take over the liquor industry under government ownership and control. Uh, the following year's re- repeal was a major stride toward expanding personal freedom and curtailing the criminalization of alcohol. By the time Duncan and his fellow Milwaukee socialists successfully overturned prohibition in Wisconsin, Support for the liquor moratorium was already diminishing among American voters. Yet even after the uh, repeal in 1933, individual states were still allowed to ban or restrict alcohol sales and use, which led to dry counties where booze is prohibited, uh, many of which still exist today. Uh, Ian, you were in Texas. There's still quite a few there. Plenty of dry counties. Uh, Along with a bevy of uh, other laws designed to limit alcohol use, as famous, you know, no public intoxication. Um, before we get into this next um, piece of the article, the, the reason I originally chose this article to bring up those, I guess online, um, there was a lot of um, people talking about this article as something that, you know, only white, you know, liberals or this, this, you know, white only frat like, boys, yeah, social like the boys. Frat, like the frat boy mentality are like the only ones that are going to benefit from this kind of thing. Right. We, we just want it because we want to drink in public and, you know, have our, you know, do our Come- thing. Be- be sock boys. It's just that then. bullshit. It's just that bullshit like woke politics. Right. It's, it's that nobody subscribed to that is mistakenly by the right seen as like the majority of leftist thought when reality most of us just shit on those fucking like fake well, woke And people. the ridiculous part about it is it's other, you know, generally white liberals telling other white liberals that you only want this because you're a, like a white liberal. Right. And it's like, <laughs> but we're both failing to realize that these laws, you know, have. You know, these draconian laws where the police are allowed to arrest people for just having a drink in public, you know, they have... They're affecting minority communities. Exactly. So So you're here focused on a small, like, subsect of those who'd be drinking in public, the white frat boys, and not focusing on all the black and brown people that are being arrested for shit like this, when they're just trying to enjoy their life. They're, they're, They're not hurting anybody else. They're just having a drink in public and just doing what they want in their own life that only affects them. And nobody, nobody should be able to say like, oh, you can't do that. Yeah, but we just need to be diligent on staying away from these, I guess, kind of woke arguments that always stick to the policy and just you know, keep in mind, like, who, who do these things affect, too? Not, exactly. not just who's talking about it, but who do these things affect? When you really, like, when you really break it down. Yeah, as it will here, uh, I'll read from uh, Punishing the Poor for Having a Brew. Uh, 
The, the current regime of public drinking laws has led to a system of enforcement that disproportionately punishes Americans based around racial and economic lines. As Nikki Ganong, uh, author of The Field Guide to Drinking in America, recently told Eater of Open Container Regulations, it's another racist law used almost universally against the poor. It's usually an excuse for police to stop and investigate. As the New York Times reports in 2011, New York City police issued 124,498 summonses (laughs) for drinking in public, far more than for any other violation. Uh, Unsurprisingly, in one month in Brooklyn, 85% of summons were issued to blacks and Latinos, while 4% were issued to whites, which I guarantee you, you know, of that demographic, there's way more white people being publicly intoxicated than 4%. Mm-hmm. For sure. So it's yeah. So it's it's like we said, we got to reject this this idea that just because a certain group of people are talking about it doesn't mean it's affecting a whole. Yeah, these laws are obviously used to shit on poor minority communities. You don't want to. That number was talking about uh, underage white people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and when you when you see stuff like this, you don't want you don't want to necessarily focus on. What they're focusing on when when you see these woke people bringing up this frat boy bullshit you don't want to sit there and be like yeah frat boys are annoying so therefore i don't support this without any doing any deeper thought any deep dive who who do these laws affect and who do they give power to exactly and yeah we need to be allowed to drink like everyone else in the world like we're fucking adults because it's ridiculous at this point it's kind of just hilarious how uh we're treated like children in this country when like other countries, like if you look at Germany, like at, at 16, you can buy beer and, uh, and wine, I believe. And you can also just drink with the uh, drink. And with you can drink publicly too. Exactly. Drink publicly. Right, when yeah. you turn 18, you can now buy hard alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's it at that. But at 16 in Germany, like at 16 you're considered an adult you're considered able to make your own decisions about what you want to put in your body and you're not going to get arrested for not having gonna... fear in public exactly because it's ridiculous but uh, on on the topic of children let's uh let's talk about dead iraqi children with uh some of these paintings by george bush nice transition dude yeah so um i don't know if anybody keeps up with uh mr bush uh, but he, I know I do. Uh, yeah, post post presidency, he decided to become a an artist, and so recently he or uh, he announced that he's putting out a book of uh, of immigrants, uh, of his own like self portraits and stuff of uh, of immigrants as this powerful message to how far we've come. But I think um, it's really funny. One thing we leave out when talking about, or not not we, but. Uh, this whole um section of, narrative yeah. this, whole, this whole section of like liberals that kind of have had their brain completely rotted out from their fucking skulls that have come back to this weird point of accepting and missing george bush like that's kind of insane to me but uh, a big thing that they miss here is uh george bush created ice that thing that everybody hates yeah uh, george bush made that as now scoring all these these uh these woke points with liberals for doing paintings of immigrants which in his uh in his presidency in his terms completely shit on by creating ice and as you uh, like as seen 
since its creation has done nothing but terrible things to the immigrants. You've had actual um, court cases. Crazy power to just deport people. Yeah, and you've had literal court cases where they've been caught doing like legitimate slavery with, yeah, undocumented, yeah. with undocumented people. Actual indentured servitude, yeah. Yeah, and... And Isolating people, people with schizophrenia who commit and, suicide in their facilities, yeah, and, all kinds of crazy shit. And it's just somehow people have completely forgotten about all of that and they're just like, oh, yes, George Bush. Uh, wow, I miss him. Not that I agree with him on everything politically, but, but he's he cordial. Like, yeah, he's he, he, was, he was such a real leader. He was that he was that <laughs> he was my daddy. And I'd like it's like, he really led us into multiple wars yeah <laughs> but he didn't tweet mean things when he put took us into wars he was uh he was a real president he wore his suit right <laughs> yeah. he was he wasn't an orange cheeto do you have the picture of uh bush with like the 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 like black child and the guy is that is that down this one yeah <laughs> it's just the the, pa- the pandering is amazing yeah. You have this just like diverse group here, and then that, I mean, it's really funny. Look at the fucking kid; he looks so pissed off to be here. And his next, to, you next know, to the fucking, his wife looks like she's gonna oh, fucking gonna string him up too. Yeah, like, she's like, like take him out. He's like, why are we next to this fucking war criminal? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah! They told me I get McDonald's if I take a picture. Yeah, know? my my dad said he'd take me to McDonald's if I stood next to this fucking loser. Yeah. Um. So pretty much uh, that was everything we were going to talk about in this first segment here. We can, we're going to have uh, you, Carlos, actually take us into the next uh, segment whenever you're ready. Yeah. All right. Maybe, maybe like a, a little intro into why we're bringing it up. And then... um, I guess probably the biggest reason is because, you know, with the whole coronavirus pandemic, you see the, the massive shift of, you know, everyone wants to get back to work. Everyone needs to get back to work because everyone needs money. But, you know, the biggest problem is, you know, a lot of these places aren't safe for anyone to be going in. Yeah. And there's pretty much, you know, no effort made. And, uh, you know, I've been following Richard Wolf for a long time. And I think, you know, especially during this pandemic is the message of what he's pushing for has never been more important till now definitely so if you're not familiar with richard wolf you you should definitely check him out um, yes please all, most of his work on youtube the channel you can find him on is democracy at work yeah i really I, i'd really recommend checking him out it will really open your eyes to like a lot of things that maybe you didn't put too much thought in uh not only economically but socially as well and uh and he just puts it so so succinctly too yeah, he he doesn't use all this big academic talk. He'll ex- he'll explain. He it to you. To. Yeah. No, yeah, he he's done this long enough that he can tell you it in the layman, and you'll understand. And it'll resonate we'll also, with you. We'll also be sure to put his link in the uh, replay on YouTube when that gets. Yeah, yeah. Make sure you make sure you check out the YouTube. Um, everything's you, on everything's on our Twitter. Good plug, by the way. I always make sure to put all the links up on YouTube, so it'll yeah. it'll definitely yeah. be. Thank there. you. Shout out to our producers. Please. <laughs> let's go. Let's play the video. Yeah. Yeah, get into it. Forgotten. Well, let me turn then to the other part of your question. What could be done that isn't a repeat or learning from history, doing something new? And here, let me focus on one suggestion. The conversion 
uh, or the creation would be a better way to put it, the creation of a different sector of our economy, not organized as a private capitalist enterprise with an owner or a board of directors at the top, a tiny minority, telling the vast majority, the employees, what to do, how to do it, where to do it, what technology to use, and then owning whatever the, these workers produce as fast as they produce it. That's what employers do. Here's an alternative that you know I've spoken about before. Worker co-ops, the democratization of an enterprise, so that everybody who works there, one person, one vote, makes the decisions democratically. What are we going to produce? How are we going to go about it? What technology are we going to use? Where are we going to do the production? And what are we all going to do with the, the labor, the output of our work, the collective product, good or service, that we in this enterprise uh, produce? Okay, why am I in favor of that and how could we do it now? Well, here's the first thing. We should use a law as a model passed in Italy in 1985 called the Marcora Law. And here's what it does. If you become unemployed in Italy, and by the way, this is still on the books in Italy, so it's been now since 1985, a good 35 years. Uh, if you become an unemployed, you have two choices. Choice number one is like unemployment in our country. You collect every week a check, a good bit less than what you would have otherwise earned, but enough to get you through, and you get it for somewhere between six and 18 months, depending uh, on the specifics. But you have a choice. You don't have to do that. You can instead go to the government and say, I don't want to get a check every week for the whatever the time is. I want the entire amount given to me right now as a lump sum. The government in Italy says, we will give you that lump sum on two conditions. Number one, you get at least uh, nine other unemployed Italians to go in on this with you. And number two, you use the bulk of this lump sum to start a worker cooperative business. Uh, if you fail, you will not be eligible for unemployment compensation because we're basically giving it to you now. The government won't therefore have to spend any more money than they probably would have otherwise. But here comes the difference. All of those workers will not be unemployed. They'll be working and they'll be working hard because their future depends on their success as a collective group of people making that enterprise work, because they all know what situation they'll be in if it doesn't work. Footnote, Italy has a greater uh, sector of the economy uh, organized as worker co-ops than any other country in Europe. No surprise there. Why do I recommend it? Number one, Unemployed people, that's a dead weight loss for society. The unemployed continue to consume, but they don't produce. They don't add to the store of social wealth. They just pull away from it. It is an irrationality of capitalism to ever let that exist. And by creating a worker co-op sector, you put people to work producing something useful for society because that's the condition for their worker co-op to succeed. Number two, you don't have the bad feeling, the loss of income, the loss of self-esteem that goes with unemployment. I hope 
people know that all of the indices of social distress, alcoholism, drug abuse, family violence, you name it, it goes up when unemployment goes up. So we are saving vast amounts of people's lives, energies, emotions, stability, mental health, and all of the money otherwise needed to treat those problems. And now finally, number three, if the workers together make the decisions about enterprises, they are not going to take chances with their own health. We are suffering a disaster now because a very small part of our population, the class of employers, has a conflict. They want businesses to be open because that's where their profit lies. Because they are at the top of the heap economically, they can take the steps, in most cases, to guard their health. They want the mass of people who don't have those resources and who don't depend on profits to come to work for no more than their wages and thereby risk their lives with this virus. This is impossible. The decisions of, a, of an enterprise, sure, they can include profit. That's one of the things you're in business for. But you're also in business, as in the rest of your life, committed to keeping your family safe from infectious disease, well-fed, have a decent work-life balance, and so on. Since the decisions of our corporate capitalism are made by a tiny minority, the board of directors, the owner, for the vast majority, we shouldn't be surprised that the little minority takes care of what it needs and what it wants and serves itself, and it doesn't serve the mass of people, and the coronavirus pressure to go back to work is the proof positive of the horror that that situation makes possible. So I would say, let's put huge numbers of the unemployed back to work, either under the government following the Great Depression model, or even better, organized into a worker co-op sector in which the people making the decisions will be naturally uh, making them not just about the profit of their enterprise, but just as important, if not more so, the public health of themselves, their spouses, their children, and the communities uh, in which they live. It'll be a better economic system for the majority of people. Uh, it'll only be a loss for the tiny people at the top. They've had their dominance for 300 years of capitalism. Their failure to prepare for this virus, to cope with this virus, to now manage the 35 million people, their failed preparation throughout of work, it's about time. So he kind of just threw a lot, a lot at you, but pretty much if you break it down, it's, it's the, the basic conflict. Those, those who create profits or those who get the profits want to keep getting them. And everyone else needs money to survive. And we can see with the Republicans' strategy, they, they realize this dynamic. Right. But their strategy is to take away the government benefits of people who stay at home. To right. force them to go back to work even more so than they already are. Right. But 
Yeah. I yeah. think um, really quick, I wanted to touch on something. Um, I think it's an important thing that we don't talk about. Um, we always claim to live in in a democracy, and Republicans like to say the freest democracy. Oh, he's um, gonna get into that. Definitely. Yeah, he yeah. But really quick, I just wanted to touch on it. Um, I think the idea that we live in a democracy is interesting when you also think about the aspect that uh, when you think about it, where do you spend most of your adult life in your workplace? Um, producing capital for the capital owners, etc. Using your capital, your labor, your labor power, your body, etc. to uh, create profit for somebody else. And it's interesting that the place that we spend most of our adult life, we have the least say. We have the least democracy yeah. in where we spend most of our life. So I thought that was just something to leave you with. Um, and that's pretty much our bottom line, too. Is yeah, if there's not democracy in the workplace, it's not going to translate anywhere else exactly if if we can't even get democracy in the place that is probably most important to the creation of a a society like uh just if you can't have democracy in where things are produced how are you going to have democracy at the top and how is that going to translate and how is that going to translate to helping those at the bottom um so yeah um if anything else if anybody else has anything to add oh Well, I do have one more part from this clip. Yeah, know? go ahead. Bring it up. Let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. Call ourselves a democracy. Uh, I'm going to take Americans at their word in general that when they say they are pro-democracy with a little d, with the idea of democracy, and again, that idea is if you are affected by a decision, you have the right to participate equally in making that decision. So we do that. We let our, we we let the mayor make a decision, but we all have one vote over who's the mayor. And ditto the congressperson or the senator or the president or anybody else like that. We allow to have some <laughs> real power over them, not just them over. Created us. by Republicans, by the way. Well, but the minute you enter the workplace, you cross the threshold into the office or the store or the factory. All of that democracy is immediately abolished. You have a tiny group of people at the top, the owner of the business or the major shareholders or the board of directors that are picked by the major shareholders. They have all the power. They tell you where to go, where to sit, where to stand, what machine to use, in what way, on what raw materials. They decide every single detail. Literally, how many minutes you can spend in a bathroom is determined by these same people. And at the end of the day, whatever your brains and muscles have helped to produce belongs instantaneously to the employer, not to you who've actually made the thing or performed the service. All right, this is extraordinary. What votes do you have over the behavior of the owner of your enterprise? Answer, none. What power do you have over the board of directors in the corporation where you work? None. You don't elect the board. You don't govern the board. You have no veto power over the board. Nothing. You know what you can do? You can quit. And when you quit, you can go to work for another employer and you will be right back in the same exact situation. Now, here's the punchline. If you're if you spend your life as an adult in the United States, that means you're spending five out of seven days 
the best hours of the day uh, at work in this undemocratic economic universe. You know something? You're not going to have the time, the interest, or the or the the behavior to demand in the political sphere what you don't He's have a busy in your man. economic yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, to say it in the, in academic language, the failure of Karl a Marx, economic system undermines whatever poli- political democracy you have. And what we have here in the United States is we have this sham, this thing where once a year we go into some booth uh, and make a vote. Meanwhile, we allow economic inequality uh, on the job. You're, you're never allowed to have any power on the job. You lose interest in the whole business. You don't pay attention. Half of Americans don't vote uh, normally. Uh, and, and, and you allow the wealth to buy the politicians, to buy the media. So, yeah, you have the one person, one vote, but the dominant political messaging is is in the hands of the people at the top. The inequality, the lack of democracy in the economy has basically undermined uh, democracy in politics. So if you reestablish it, if you really do give democracy a place in the workplace, in the enterprise, by setting up worker co-ops, you will not only bring democracy to the workplace where it should have been all along and never was, but you're also striking a real blow to make democracy politically real instead of merely formal. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't say it better. Yeah. I think the best the best way I could summarize kind of what he all just said is that is what the whole union movement of the 30s should have right right what it should have coalesced to at some point it's actually interesting uh on my lunch today while i was at work uh, i was watching this i was watching this video so i can uh have something to say about it and um one of my coworkers overheard me and he asked like what i was watching i explained it and then uh, we kind of started you know just talking the job about it and he, he is just kind of saying like oh like I think worker co-ops like a cool idea, but I don't think they'll ever work here in the United States. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, why do you think that? And he was basically just uh, people like people are like naturally greedy kind of thing, uh, not taking into account that all we all we see from all we see from employers is just greed because that's their that's like the whole point of an employer, right. is, and it, it, that's the whole point of capitalism is to just are we to, and especially here create profit. Right? Like Wolf brings up, like literally in Italy, they do this shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, and then uh, he asked, he asked me like, uh, like if there are any like notable like worker co-ops, and I brought up Madrigone in Spain. If you guys don't yeah, know what that contract, is, it's, yeah. Madrigone is like uh, what is like I believe if I can. I think like, they are the biggest. I think they are the biggest worker co-op, co-op. and they yeah. they're like very competitive with the typical um, employer employee structure, and um, yeah, I mean they turn a profit. Yeah, they yeah, and um, I think um, what was interesting about that conversation is um, kind of like how understanding they were just like from the get go, and then um, it kind of I don't want to say devolved, but it turned into more of um, like just kind of like the normal things you hear when you like you know uh, if you don't like something, you can you can go somewhere else, and uh, like how we just brought up, it's like. Uh, I was, we were talking about uh, like like wages and stuff, and um, I was saying how like our like because we were at work, I was at Whole Foods. He, was, I was saying like how our boss Jeff Bezos only raised their wages 
after legislation was passed and and uh yeah, Bernie it was, was gonna make it yeah, for and it was it was it was a weird take because he kind of like um from there he was just like well like you know like he brought up the whole like started in his basement thing and he was just like you know if you don't like the cool thing about uh the cool thing about it is if you don't like where you work you can you can just quit and go work somewhere else. And, and that's kind of it, you don't say in the same place. And not right? only that, it's just, that's kind of a made-up. That's that's a made-up thing because most Americans they're glued to their job, right. whether yeah. whether that be especially now, whether whether yeah, especially now, but normal Corona, yeah. whether that whether that be from, um, like being tied to healthcare, like needing that job yeah, because it true. provides healthcare to your whole family. Or just lack of job security in in their region, like like places like the deep south, the deep south and the rest. But like, once you get a job, you don't want to quit because fucking what happens if you can't find another job? You're you're fucked. You're screwed. Right, your children. You're, not only you're gonna starve, but your children are gonna starve, etc. So like this idea that you can just whenever you want quit and go somewhere else is mostly false. I mean, if you live in like if you're in a comfortable situation, if you come from just more wealth than the average American. Yeah, you might be able to quit your job and go work somewhere else. You might be able to not not work until you find a place that has exactly what you want. But for the overwhelming majority of Americans, that's not it. Like you get your job at Walmart, you work that job at Walmart, you go find a job at like an Applebee's and you work both of those jobs just to make your rent. Then in some cases you have fucking mothers of children that they're raising while also working two and in some cases three jobs just to make just to make the random bills. That's it. Just to survive, people are having to overwork themselves working insane hours. And it's uh it's it's crazy that we're even having this conversation at this point about uh like capitalism in general, but also having this conversation about um like minimum wage, stuff like that rent control like the fact that there's even like i mean most of the debate comes from lobbyists but the fact that there's even debate period is just ridiculous when you have the bottom doing so terribly and the top doing so well you have to at one point realize the imbalance is coming from somewhere and it's definitely from the top and that's, yeah that's that's um, pretty much what i had to do you have any on. do you have any closing thoughts carlos before we move on um I did, but I forgot them. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's let's move into our like I guess our climate segment then. Yeah, this is uh, a this was like one of the the cooler parts that uh, I'm gonna let Jake and Carlos take over here because uh, they brought most of these links to the table. Yeah, um, but any feel free anyone jump in. Obviously, yeah. um, we're gonna start with the uh, oil spill that. It only was recent news, I guess, but because it didn't happen recently, the the spill itself did, but the the cause, kind of like uh, you know, Lebanon was underlying. It's it's been going on. Uh, I'll read from the you know the top. It's title on the top down. Uh, Mauritius scrambles to counter counter oil spill from grounded ship. Uh, anxious residents of Mauritius uh, created makeshift oil spill barriers on Saturday as tons of fuel leaking from a grounded ship put endangered wildlife in further jeopardy. Um, Past that one. The the Indian Ocean nation has declared an environmental emergency 
and France said it was sending help from the nearby island uh, of Reunion. Uh, when biodiversity is imperiled, there's urgency to act, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron said on Saturday. Uh, keep, keep that statement in mind uh, as we move on. Um, let's move down to the point when it says uh, residents and environmentalists alike. Residents and environmentalists alike wondered why authorities didn't act more quickly after the ship ran aground on a reef on July 25th. Um, Marisha says the ship, uh, the MV Wakashio, was carrying nearly 4,000 tons of fuel. Uh, that's the big question, John Hughes Gardine says of the Mauritian uh, Wildlife Foundation, told the Associated Press. Why that ship has been sitting for long, uh, sitting for long in that coral reef and nothing has been done. Uh, he said it was the country's first oil spill and perhaps no one expected the ship to break apart. Uh, for days, residents peered out at the precariously tilted boat as a salvage team arrived and began work. But ocean waves kept battering it. They just hit and hit and hit, Mr. Gardine said. Cracks in the hull were detected a few days ago, and the salvage team quickly left the scene. About 400 booms used to contain, or yeah, basically barrels used to contain oil on sea surface were sent, but they were not. Uh, they were not enough. Um, Mauritian Prime Minister Praveen. Jagalf, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, says the spill represents a danger for the country of 1.3 million people, which relies heavy on tourism and has been hit hard by the pandemic. Uh, Our country doesn't have the skills and expertise to refloat stranded ships, he said on Friday. Bad weather had made further action impossible, he said. I worry what could happen Sunday when the weather deteriorates. Uh, Heavy wind is expected to push the oil slick farther along the mainland shore. Uh, Mauritius Meteorological Service's forecast for Sunday, his last Sunday, advised that seas would be rough with swells beyond the reefs and ventures in the open uh, seas not advised. Um, so really the two quotes I, I feel like need to be kept in mind here are from uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, who was saying, when biodiversity is in peril, there's urgency to act. Although, you know, it has yeah. been a month. Absolutely since- zero urgency. <laughs> Yeah, or any action until way too late. And then coming from, you know, um, the prime minister, uh, our country doesn't have the skills and expertise to refloat stranded ships, which is most likely true. But a country that does that, uh, you know, controlled Mauritius and many of the islands around it and has, you know, tens of trillions of dollars and is able to do something is the French government and Emmanuel Macron. (laughs) Who could have, when the ship was grounded, actually done something about it? And yeah, it's just disgusting to see because Macron's kind of been this, you know, the one of the liberal figures in uh, in France. Obviously, there's been the the long ongoing yellow vest protest against him, but he's a uh, he's really shown like kind of what would would have happened maybe if someone like Hillary had won our election in 2016. Yeah, just. Just that basic uh, liberalism ideology. Yeah, he's not change up anything. Still conform to the same capitalist ideology. Well, and they were ground zero for you know the Paris Climate Accord, which you know is of course is better than what we're doing now. And Trump backed out of that, but, but still doesn't go far enough. Yeah, I'm talking and about how obviously we're was climate change. It obviously was uh, you know 
coming out of you know one side of their mouth and something out the other because they say that, but then in incidents like this where they can actually make a change and say biodiversity, um, they do nothing. So, yeah, they do absolutely nothing until it's literally too late. Yeah, it's too late, and you know they can do they can mitigate the damage now, but it's there's already oil in the water. It's, it is yeah, what it is. Exactly. So yeah, horrible news. Um, we can move on to the next thing we have in this climate piece. Some more bad news. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me go ahead and pull this one up. And this is where things start to get a little dark. Yeah. So uh, Canadian Canadian ice she- uh, shelf area bigger than Manhattan collapses due to rising temperatures. A last fully intact ice shelf in the Canadian Arctic lost more than 40% of its area in two days at the end of July. Um, the Milne Ice Shelf is at the fringe of Ellesmere Island in the sparsely populated northern Canadian territory of Nunavut. Uh, above normal air temperatures, offshore winds, and open water in front of the ice shelf are all part of the recipe for ice shelf breakup. The Canadian Ice Services said in a tweet earlier this week, uh, entire cities are that size. These are big pieces of ice, said Luke Coplin, a glaciologist at the University of Ottawa who is part of the research team studying the Milne Ice Shelf. Uh, the shelf's area shrank, shrank from about uh, 80 square kilometers. Uh, by comparison, the island of uh, Manhattan in New York covers roughly 60 square kilometers. So it's bigger than Manhattan, and it's, yeah, it's shrunk. And it's the la- it was the last fully intact one also, horribly. Uh, this was the largest remaining intact ice shelf, and it's disintegrated, basically, Coplin said. The Arctic has been warming at twice the global rate for the last 30 years, due to a process known as Arctic amplification. But this year, temperatures in the polar region have been intense. The polar sea ice hits its lowest extent for July in 40 years. A record heat and wildfires have scorched Siberian Russia. Summer in the Canadian Arctic this year, in particular, has been 5 degrees Celsius above the 30-year average, Kaplan said. That has threatened smaller ice caps, which can melt quickly because they do not have the bulk that larger glaciers have to stay cold. As a glacier disappears, more bedrock is exposed, which then heats up and accelerates the melting process. Uh, skipping that paragraph, the ice shelf collapse on Ellesmere Island also meant the last the loss of the Northern Hemisphere's last known epishelf lake, a geographic feature in which a body of fresh water is dammed by the ice shelf and floats atop ocean water, which, you know, in high, maybe in future hindsight, you know, we really need access to fresh water as we, you know, further aerify, like, places like the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, one of the last known, um, the last known one in the Northern Hemisphere that's captured in a uh, a glacier, just boop, gone. Gone. Uh, skipping a couple more, I, I found this this count this uh, quote pretty uh, pretty stark. Uh, Ellesmere also lost two Patrick Bay ice caps this summer. We saw them going like someone with terminal cancer. It was only a matter of time," said Mark Serres or Cerezi, uh, director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's putting it as unlikely as possible. We saw them going, referring to the ice caps, like someone with terminal cancer. Watching then, your life force be drained from you. Yeah, that's, that's what, what's happening to our planet. And, and if you remember from the top of the article, it lost 40% of its mass in two days at the end of July. 
Yeah. Insane to think about this huge 80 square kilometers and 40% of it took two days. And yeah, just New gone. York dropping into the, or Manhattan rather, dropping into the that uh, uh, yeah. ocean. That happened um, caused like flooding issues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And all kinds of stuff. Because they're saying there's also, yeah, the fresh water that was in it too. So I'm not this, to mention what it messes up in the cycle and. And just yeah. messing up uh, like the wildlife because you know salt yeah, like yeah. salt water salt water creatures when you put them in freshwater, or the rising water for the polar bears you know can't cross yeah. those different gaps. Continuing to push them towards continuing to push them towards the equator. So obviously all this is very bad news, and uh, the planet is we're watching it die in front of our eyes. But Carlos and, has something that maybe we can uh, maybe uh, smile a little bit about. Yeah. Well. We have to remember to be realistic. Absolutely. But, you know, we can't put all our hope on one thing, but, you know, out of all the solutions I've seen for different ways we can tackle climate change, this this is probably the biggest one. And I don't think I've heard anyone really talk about it, you know. Yeah, I literally I didn't get any coverage. I literally did not know about this until Carlos. Until until this, yeah, segment. Yeah. So um, this is pretty pretty interesting stuff. Carlos, if you want to take it, go ahead. So as the title reads, uh, Turning the Tide on Climate Change with Green Sand Beaches, capturing, trillion, capturing a trillion tons of, C- of excess CO2 in rock using the power of natural wave energy. So the nature-based permanent, scalable, and affordable solution to climate change. Nature has shown us how this sand can help save the planet. Weathering is the Earth's, remo- the Earth's natural CO2 removal process. So I'm going to kind of start summarizing because yeah. it goes on here. And basically, as the picture kind of shows, you have natural uh, volcanic rock and the main uh, mineral that this whole process involves, olivine, that gets weathered down by rain naturally and gets kind of washed down into the sediment of the earth. And as this process happens, the CO2 gets captured and it gets stored naturally into the ground. Right, it becomes like limestone, etc. in the ground, right? And that CO2 is comes from the atmosphere as rising CO2 levels uh, increase, you know. There's yeah, there's a lot more uh, CO2 in the atmosphere uh, being dissolved into the water. So this, this olivine is... material picks up the carbon as it merges with the water and creates like a material that, you know, sinks. And it's pretty much the best way to you know try to lower our amount of co2 in the atmosphere as well as the oceans too and it's and what's interesting about this uh it's going to explain as we continue to go further but it's interesting how not only detailed they are in this but how um how interesting of an yeah how it's not only scalable but how interesting of an idea this is and um can be so effective, and they're gonna get into the price here soon. Uh, right. Wait until you this wait until you hear about how cost effective this is, and we'll go into that right now. 
So maybe we should yeah touch on the uh, this this section here. So it doesn't actually say it in here, but from what I've read, they estimate that in order to get our carbon emission levels neutral, so that our parts per million amount of you know carbon dioxide in the atmosphere doesn't continue to increase, you know we're not lowering it just to neutral neutralize it. It would be about five hundred billion dollars a year, which is in order to get all this deployed to get the well it's it's crushed up olivine that they yeah. spread on the beach. They're essentially making it into a sand and then replacing sand or yeah using it as a an alternative sand so that we can um, yeah. remove c o t c o two from the atmosphere and what's interesting is um Here's the picture. Hearing, how it yeah, works. it's uh, it should be on screen. But hearing the price tag, five hundred billion, when you're talking about uh, like a nation's economy, that's nothing. And to put it into perspective, our last military budget increase, that big one that everybody made a fuss about, especially with the whole um, Nancy Pelosi ripping up the speech shit, that was a uh, seven hundred or seven hundred and fifty billion dollar increase for our military budget. So just roll that back and boom we have a really incredible and scalable way to combat climate change and it's just uh something to think about and also something one more thing to piss you off about something to make you hate uh, not only the trump government but uh, the entire establishment just a little bit more and uh this group uh project vesta they're a non-profit out of california so yep yeah, they definitely have a a lot of uh, scientists, you know, who can vet this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, and even if you click on the the science tab, I mean, it goes through. There's so many different like scientific journals and articles that come up, and and you can see here on there, they have a whole question and answer page just that goes on. Yeah, and ba- I mean, we can. I guess we can wrap it up. Basic concept for people too, like. Yeah, the the goal is I, they said something like two percent of you know what did they say like sea shores or beach areas that they would have to do this to, and they they've even calculated you know the the amount of you know fossil fuel energy it would take to extract all the olivine and get it to all the places. Mm. And so the they estimate the a net loss of about five percent on right. carbon emissions it would take to you know have this process unfold which is pretty much nothing mm-hmm. because you know that's a massive massive you know gain in carbon being taken out of the atmosphere yeah <laughs> yeah and and this is a, <laughs> these are immediate results where you know right. like currently i'd say the Pretty much if you ask any general person, their best idea is, well, let's just plant a bunch of trees. Right. Which, you know, that's not a bad idea, but, you know, like not taking into account time realize, to grow. Yeah. it You got to and you also have to protect them, too, because right. if a bad forest fire happens, it basically a neutralize. It erases everything you just did. Yeah. Right. You're pretty well, much this doesn't in- really have a like a weather component There's, to it, too, where we're going to get screwed. And, and, let's, and then, like, you go back to the top here, the the CO2 that gets stored in the, you know, down at the ocean floor, it stays there. <laughs> yeah. It's not going anywhere. 
the the way it gets recycled is the you know the tectonic plate process mm-hmm. and you know it eventually will end up in a in the probably more of the mantle but yeah and their idea is essentially just accelerating a, a this process mm-hmm. right yeah this is definitely a long-term strategy but yeah it, it doesn't take you know a long-term amount of time to get it going exactly yeah, we, could, we could bust this out so quick if we just fucking got to work and I think part of this whole new rollout with the Vesta thing too is they were they were actually testing it on on beaches now too, right? They actually have their own test area they're doing it. Yeah, and it's a, it. I mean, they have like a uh, a GPS overview of a controlled beach in their own, and it's like, yeah, the evidence it's obvious. Like the erosion, the. Go ahead, Michael. I was about to, I was about to ask like uh, if it was in effect or in its testing area because it seems very in depth and like I I see that there's a lot of uh, research being put into it so I was just I was wondering if it's yeah uh, probably in effect of course in a smaller scale of course it's not in large scale, yeah you know. but even their 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 you know idea to do it you know two percent of like you know global you know shores and beaches like is nothing to get this done too like it's, it's not like we have to change every beach to to olivine too like yeah yeah we sure but, we sure could though yeah and then something like this needs to get talked about and implemented into obviously a wider you know plan to combat climate change but it yeah. definitely needs insane amount of media coverage we need to get this yeah it's awesome to the to the I'm forefront of what we're talking too. about yeah heard about it yeah. this is a it was kind of a, a crazy topic. It's something I literally did not know about until Carlos brought it up. Yeah. So another shout out to Carlos. Yeah, I heard we about won't. it from a Graham Elwood segment. He oh, nice. So nice. Anyone want to look him up? He's definitely a great uh, person to watch. Yeah. yeah. Funny, too. He's very funny. Also out of California. Jake, do you want to take us into our first topic, talking international? Uh, this, yeah. is te- this is technically... Uh, International well. and uh, an anniversary, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and intro, and then we'll have Carlos read from an, an article we have, and then talk on a book because this this is pretty important. Um, we just passed uh, the seventy fifth anniversary of um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, that is the United States dropping the only two nuclear bombs to ever be dropped on a civilian population, other than of course the Marshall Islands, which we also did. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, that anniversary just recently passed, so I think it's important for us, you know, 75 years deep to reflect on, you know, one of the worst war crimes in human history and maybe a, a couple of different angles and, you know, how, how it was. And yeah, well, Carlos, you want to go ahead and bring up that, uh, that article? Talk yeah. about it. Here, so uh, I kind of skipped down a bit because here I'll just go up to the top. So, uh, title: Why did Americans accept barbaric slaughter of Japanese civilians? Which is a you know a fairly honest question because you know if you think to you know what you learned in history class, I mean the most the most obvious example they always say is. Well, they did the calculation and they realized that, you know, we'd lose more American lives going and invading the Japanese mainland than if we just did this. Right. So, 
as you can see. That's always their their steel man argument, right? The, and, the and all, also, it's just um, a completely unproven fact, like fact that um, is always talked about. Is they always say like, "Oh, the Japanese would have never given up." Like that's like that's something that like holds no actual weight. With, well, like, even even something I had learned. Like, in a, actually, you know, I, I might argue that. It might be true, but something that I had learned in a, a foreign policy class is that usually between these massive bombing raids, they would wait post three days to see for a declaration of surrender, right? Mm-hmm. Um, between Hiroshima and Nagasaki was three days. Exactly. <laughs> so, so they didn't wait. They, they dropped it. No, that might have also been part of the strategy, too, obviously, to... To be like, we're not even going to wait for a, a declaration of surrender between the two bombs. We'll just... But lo- looking back in memos, their their plan was, we'll drop the first one, and if they don't surrender in enough time, we'll drop the second one, even though we don't want to. But um, obviously the reality is we drop them, you know, within three days of each other <laughs> and devastated two cities. And, like, uh, yeah, and the three days thing is, like, is three days between a normal bombing is different than three days between a nuclear bomb. Bombing, yeah, we're yeah, completely different. As we'll bring up from the of the book I have um, in the Nagasaki um, bombing, it took them two weeks just to remove the bodies they, they that still you know existed. Yeah, from that the weren't province. that weren't literally dust. So that's just two weeks to you know remove bodies and figure out what the hell happened. Uh, Carl, you want to go to the to the article though? Here, there's a section I want to read from. Yeah, down at the bottom. And you see, it's very long. Yeah, it's in an interview style format. Yeah, kind of. Where was it? Okay. So. I'm going to start reading here. And the other thing is that for years, they did these nuclear war studies about limited nuclear war. Okay, so we drop one on the Russians, and they drop one on us, and then we negotiate. But study after study found it impossible to reach an end, to reach an end point that these limited nuclear war scenarios don't work in war games and that we've tried to, con- and that we've tried to conduct that they almost always go completely out of control and to complete nuclear war. So yeah, it just becomes increasingly untenable to maintain these nuclear weapons. As yeah. Much as, oh. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, just as a response to that, I mean, the only reason that didn't happen to us is because, you know, we were the only ones with nuclear bombs yeah. at the time, yeah. Okay. As much as there... As much as there's a nuclear arms race between the United States and Russia, to a much lesser extent, apparently, China, there's, and there's been studies, according to Wilkerson as well, about how many nuclear weapons are really needed to defend the United States. And it's like thousands less than there are. <laughs> what, what do we know about what the Chinese are doing? The, Ch- the Chinese approach makes much more sense. First of all, they've got a no, a no first use policy, which means they would never use nuclear weapons to initiate a war. Right now, you, Russia and the United States 
have about a 93% have have about 93% of the world's nuclear weapons. China has had a very different approach. They've got about 300. Where whereas we have maybe 7,000. <laughs> they have 300. What they understand is that 300 is as effective as 7,000 as a deterrent. Shit. It's just <laughs> You think it's funny to like to think where you're gonna get gonna get to use even a quarter of those if nuclear war yeah, breaks out? We're you just get like fifty, yeah. <laughs> you send your first wave and then that's it, world's over. Like you're not gonna use seven thousand fucking nukes. So yeah, that's pretty much all I had from that. I think that was the most important part. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So even the argument that it's you know building these stockpiles are a great a good deterrent is. You don't need you don't need that many. You don't we don't need any at all. But uh we definitely don't need seven thousand. Yeah. Um to jump from the, the article, I, I guess it's our our uh, our book for the, the show today. Um, I I just picked it up so I'm not I'm not too far, maybe like thirty pages deep. Um but it's from the foreword. Um the building the, the book is called Children of the Atomic Bomb. It's a a, a memoir from uh, pediatrician James N. Yamazaki. And he actually went to the uh, to Nagasaki and Hiroshima post the bombings and studied uh, the effects of the bombings on children. Um, yeah, and as you imagine, what he found is awful. But you know, one of the good passages I found here in the foreword early is a uh, uh, subsequently posted in Nagasaki. He's talking about. Um, Dr. Yamazaki, uh, apparently as a kind of exile for protesting such racist policies in Hiroshima, Dr. Yamazaki embarked on research concerning the medical effects of the atomic bomb without ever being informed of the existence of earlier U.S. scientific reports of this subject. So he was actually sent for, by the U.S. government to study the effects on the population. And he was told about none of the tests that had already been done that, you know, we, that we knew of what radiation did. So he's going there completely blind. Uh, another part of his own personal story, too, that um, you hear later on is he's doing this for the U.S. Meanwhile, his parents are in uh, internment camps, you know, concentration camps in California. Uh, disgusting, of course. Um, here's something I didn't know, though. Um, in the United States, there has emerged an almost pathological aversion to confronting what, what actually took place beneath the mushroom clouds. Uh, in the phrasing of a Senate resolution of September 1994 condemning the attempt of the Smithsonian Institution to present an exhibition emphasizing the human toll in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the bombs are said to have helped bring World War II to a merciful end. And then another thing I have uh, tabbing here. Yeah. Um, it just, just even even if that was their argument, it's it's ridiculous to think that they wouldn't even let uh, the Smithsonian, you know, have a have an exhibition that emphasizes uh, the the deaths that yeah. you know it caused. Uh, further on, though, uh, for many survivors of the bomb, the curtain has never has closed on the so-called last act of the war, and never will. Uh, Dr. Yamazaki notes and calls attention to nine different forms of cancer caused by radiation exposure from the bomb. Jesus. Um, most of these that affect children. Um, 
see if I can bring up the last little quote I have here. Actually, earlier. Now there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when, when he actually vi visited Japan later in uh, 1989, when Dr. James Yamazaki visited Japan in 1989, he attended a meeting of mothers in Hiroshima who were parents of Pika babies. Pika is a familiar euphemism to most Japanese, referring to the blinding flash of the atomic bomb and conveying a vivid sense of thermal burns and radiation poisoning. The Pika babies were children with abnormalities, including mental retardation, um, you know, um, malformed effects, etc. So, yeah, and one of the things that um, so far I've seen that, that it goes on is that obviously we know the, the effects that it caused the population um, during the radiation effects, but one of the things that did worse to children or most of the children was those that were unborn. Um, most of the unborn, you know, are those Pika babies that are 40, 50 years post the war, you know, have these effects, kind of like the children in, uh, in Vietnam. In Vietnam from, yeah, yeah. From I was just Asian about to bring March. that up. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I'm sure there's numerous other examples too, but yeah, it, it shows that our, our weapons of destruction, you know, they obviously, it's not a five, 10 year damage. It's, they have more than Anything the intended permanent. effect. Uh, the, yeah. the intended effect is obviously to, generations. Yeah, they don't. Nobody. Uh, they probably. They might have. They probably did. No, but uh, publicly, they never took into account what this would do to generations after. Yeah. I think. When the war is over. But we we can move on from this. But yeah, go. Uh, if you can check out this book, uh, Children of the Atomic Bomb. Uh, it, it was actually released on the fiftieth anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so it's interesting we bring it up for the 75th. Mm. Um, not much has changed in public opinion, I feel, but we'll, we'll see. Um, so what's our, what's our next one here? Is it... Is, it's, uh, we're we're, we're going to be talking about uh, Bolivia, yeah. Okay, I'll go, I'll go ahead and read some of that one, and then we'll, we'll yeah, open we it to dis discussion. Yeah, we um, the, the headline here, um, Bolivia's regime mobilizes far-right paramilitary groups. Paramilitary and extremist groups have waged assaults on demonstrators in three regions as security forces look the other way on day seven of nationwide protests uh, demanding elections. As you know, and as we covered earlier, they've delayed the elections because of coronavirus, but um, that's not true. In reality, it's just to keep this fucking fascist regime in power. Yeah, this coup. Uh, Human rights defenders are warning about the use of civil shock groups and paramilitaries linked to Bolivia's coup regime, which is, of course, linked to us, uh, to violently attack the road blockades while leaving people injured. Uh, Bolivia's Obumasan Nadia Cruz has reported to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, as well as to the UN Human Rights Chief, Michelle Bachelet, that Bolivia's police has turned to irregular civilian groups with a parapolice and paramilitary character, to lift the blockades being carried out as organized working-class sectors intensify their resistance to the coup. Uh, the o o Obudsman denounced that one of these groups was present on Saturday night at Plaza Abaroa in the city of La Paz, where youth are holding a hunger strike and vigil outside of the Supreme Electoral Court. Under the threats of force, the shot group demanded that the citizens end their protests while police stood by idle. Sounds very familiar to our own situation in some yeah. ways. 
the, the protesters say they are vulnerable to an es- escalation of attacks as media workers are now also afraid to cover the events due to intimidation by violent groups. The Association for Human Rights of Bolivia has called on international organizations to pronounce themselves on these violations. It also reported that a journalist of the television channel, Cadena A, was assaulted while trying to film the far-right group intimidating youth and student protesters. Across the country, 61 rural workers were arrested on Saturday afternoon in the municipality of Samaypata in the Department of Santa Cruz after an ambush by paramilitary groups of the far-right Samaypata Civic Committee in joint actions with the police. Um, A number of those who were detained and released report torture and maltreatment and said the police planted explosives within the belongings of the arrested in order to accuse them of carrying such devices. Jesus. Around 40 of of them are currently still being held as political prisoners, some of which have been framed as carrying explosives. Um, We we can stop there. And uh, can we actually bring up the video of of some of these uh, working-class indigenous people marching. Um, as the, it says here, could you open it back so we could just read the little, the little caption they have here? Uh, Bolivians marched today against the U.S.-backed regime past the Kuilani Bridge, Sakaba, where the regime massacred anti-coup protesters on November 15, 2019. So, yeah, when the coup had last taken place, they had actually killed uh, people, indigenous, you know, working-class protesters here. And as we'll play, they're they're here marching again. And something to keep in mind for those uh, who don't know much about Bolivia, like a good majority of the population are indigenous people. Right, and they finally had control, democratic control of the government until you know, yeah, we got our through Evo Morales and the MAS. Um, for those of you in audio only, I guess, um, yeah, it's just this an insane amount of people. They're all dressed in their traditional indigenous regalia. They have the indigenous Bolivian flag carried along with them. They also have the, the now uh, internationally known uh, Bolivian flag with them as yep. well. And uh, yeah, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah, and it's, it's beautiful too to see this this kind of resistance in a time like this. And also being as uh, diligent as they are wearing masks for those Yeah, masks. yeah. Lots of masks. Right. Yeah, uh, it actually seems like they've done pretty pretty well. And it's just, uh, it's very good. It's very uh, good and also um, it uh, gives you hope that um, no matter yeah, where... they're standing no, no, up. They're standing no, matter, up. no matter where fascism appears... Um, not only just the left, but those who oppose fascism, uh, will always will always rise and will and will we'll take them down. And it's a, it's good to see, and it gives you hope for the future of uh, leftist politics and also just the uh, continuation of our society. Uh, moving quick from uh, Bolivia, another place that the U.S. along with Saudi Arabia has you know shit on and you know continued an ongoing genocide um, of the Yemeni people. Let's bring up the the Reuters article. Uh, I'll go ahead and bring it up to you real quick. Um, The the headline here, um, Women of Southern Yemen Port Remember Better Times. Um, 
skipping the intro paragraph. Um, that was two decades ago. Uh, Afrodal Said, she lived in what was the Socialist People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. Uh, many women's rights guaranteed by that sudden state have been chipped away since it merged with the more conservative tribal north in 1990. Um, it was such a beautiful time. Now I mostly stay at home. If I go out, I have to cover my hair and dress in an abaya, said a, a journalist. Uh, a journalist said, talking angry at her shapeless black robe. Uh, some Adeni men also lament the post-unification erosion of women's rights in Yemen's once socially liberal south, where people say the Sana'a government treats them unfairly in a host of ways, including uh, property disputes, jobs, and pension rights. Um, if we can go farther down to where the, the bold is for, says, regression, um, southern secessionism represents a potent threat for Salah. Already struggling with a Shiite revolt in the north and a resurgent al-Qaeda network which drew world attention after it said it was behind a failed December 25th attack on a U.S. airliner. Uh, Salah forged north-south unity in 1990. But four years later, a southern breakaway was crushed by government forces stifled by Islamist militants who had once fought in Afghanistan. Keep in mind, these Islamist militants who had once fought in Afghanistan, that's Saudi Arabia funded, baby. And that's the reason why southern Yemen, who was once a a socialist, you know, people's republic, um, slowly the north that was influenced by Saudi Arabia, um, they've regressed into this Wahhabist, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia society. And not only that, but Saudi Arabia with the, the, the whole southern part, um, the part that resisted, is now doing an ongoing genocide. Um, yeah, most, yeah. Mostly funded by us, too. You know, we're from, we make their bombs. To we, put it very lightly, they're, they're yeah. literally glassing cities. Uh, yeah. Villages. Bombing school innocent, buses of children. Exactly. and uh, Famously. To now use such vulgar language, like, but, but glassing. Yeah. Glassing villages. Um, to go down to the uh, where it says Saudi influence, we'll just touch on that a little bit. And this is why I wanted to bring it up because, um, although you know, we obviously know the current history of Yemen being you know the massacre that's going on there, as well as you know, not that long ago where Trump vetoed one of his only vetoes, vetoed the, the War Power Act and said, We will, you know, we won't end in any way our you know, our support for this genocide. Um, Here from the article, Saudi influence, uh, Aden, or Aden, whose port had its heyday during British rule, has always been more outward-looking than the rest of Yemen. In the socialist era, the city had women prosecutors, judges, and senior government officials. Many women studied in the Soviet Union. Uh, Since unity, Islam has made a deeper mark in in Aden. Uh, Mosques sprung up on almost every street, while other buildings decay in a city neglected for years. Um, it goes on, but the, the point is, you know, to people that say this kind of, you know, socialist society isn't possible in places like the Middle East, we'll have another example after this too, but look at Yemen, man. They were, they were showing, you know, progression for women in their society. They were trying to socialize their means of production. And they've seen nothing but regression from, you know, a U.S. abetted state. And it's really sad to see. But it's also, you know, because obviously most people don't know 
socialist <coughs> southern Yemen, <coughs> it's good to see that it's possible to change. Yeah, and we it's can, uh, and with having such deep roots, um, when given a chance, the transition back will kind of almost seem natural for a lot of people. And like as it says in the article, they want that. A lot of the people, you know, marvel at the heyday. They liked, they liked having better, more rights. <laughs> like, and, was, and one of the most important things to take away living in the United States is we are very responsible for what's going on, and we have a lot of power to change what's going on. Right. Um, if we actually had... The most power. Yeah, if we actually had leaders that literally cared about this democracy that they all claim to care about, they would, they would, they would um, immediately stop the funding. They would denounce what Saudi Arabia is doing. They would do everything they can to help Southern Yemen and to, yeah. to, bring, to bring back the real democracy, what, what Southern Yemen had planned and could even have spread to Northern Yemen, like um, right. unifying, the, not unifying the country and bringing a better, more socialistic lifestyle um, to the people, less alienation from things like their labor and their communities and um, less of this oppressive theocratic government and um, just truly bringing life back in, into these forgotten communities. Yeah, and I guess that's a good segue for, I believe it's our last, our last article for the night. Yeah. Stay with us if you're still here. Thank you again, everybody who's still here, everybody who came earlier. We really appreciate it. We're going to jump around a little bit in this article, so bear with us. Um, it's really good, though. Um, I'll read the headline first, and then we'll scroll to the bottom. Um, Abdullah Akalan, my solution for Turkey, Syria, and the Kurds. Um, this, is, this is an op-ed by him. Uh, for over two decades, Kurdish leader Abdullah Akalan has been held in the Turkish Persian prison on Imrali Island. In this op-ed for Jackman, he calls for a democratic nation project able to unite citizens of different ethnic backgrounds and cultural traditions. Can we actually scroll to the bottom first because it gives a little summary uh, on Abdullah uh, for the demos? Yeah. Uh, yeah, right there, that little bef- Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right there, right, right above the slash. Uh, let me get to it and I'll read it. Uh, Abdullah Akalan is the founder of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, uh, the PKK, regarded as one of the Kurds' most important political representatives and a leading strategist. Uh, ever since his abduction from Kenya in 1999 and subsequent trial and death sentence commuted to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, he has been held in total isolation on, in Raleigh Island for almost 11 years. For almost 11 years, he was the sole prisoner there. Um, then we can, we, can, we can go back to the top where the, uh, the article starts. I'll go ahead and read from there. Um, and th- this, first, this first couple paragraphs are... To hear, I guess, a, a politician talk like this is, some, uh, yeah, mind-blowing. Um, Capitalist modernity is history's deadliest and most continuous crisis of civilization. In particular, the general destruction of the last 200 years has disrupted thousands of evolutionary links in the natural environment. We are probably not yet fully aware of the devastation this has caused the plant and animal worlds. It is, however, clear that, like the atmosphere, both these worlds are steadily emitting SOS signals. How long can humanity go on enduring this modernity, modernity 
which has inflicted far-reaching environmental devastation and caused the disintegration of society? How will humanity soothe the pain and agony of war, unemployment, hunger, and poverty? The claim that the nation-state protects society is a vast illusion. On the contrary, society has been increasingly militarized by the nation-state and fully submerged in a kind of war. I call this war a society side, imposed in two ways. First, power and the state apparatus control, oppress and surveil society. Second, the information technology, the media monopolies, of the past 50 years has replaced real society with a virtual one. Up against the canons of nationalism, religionism, sexism, scientism, the arts, and the entertainment industry, including sports, soap operas, etc., with which society is being battered 24-7 by the, me- by the media, how can society be defended? It's becoming quite clear that nation-statism in the Middle East is, in fact, one of capitalist modernity's tools of domination. With the Treaty of Versailles was to Europe, the Sykes-Picot Agreement draws up, drawn up between the British and the French in 1916 is to the Middle East a peace to end all peace. Today's nation-states have the same meaning in the region as the Roman Empire's governors once had, but they are even more collaborationist with capitalist modernity and stand even further from the region's cultural traditions. They are at war with their own peoples internally and with one another externally. The liquidation of traditional society means war against peoples, and maps drawn with a ruler are an invitation for wars between states. None of them are adequate to overcoming the deepening crisis. In fact, their existence, i.e. the the nation-states, further deepens this crisis. Um, Let's go ahead and move down to the fighting for the future section. Yeah, let's, uh, we'll, we'll start actually um, one, one paragraph above from the fighting for the future section. Uh, the democratic nation solution proposed by the, Kurds, by the Kurds has enabled them to eliminate ISIS, the result of religi- religious monism on behalf of all humanity. This is no doubt the result of our paradigm based on women's freedom, making it a role model all over the world. Fighting for the future. At present, the developments in northern and eastern Syria have reached an important point. The recognition of the administration of north and east Syria and the local democracy it represents for the Arab, Kurdish, Armenian, Assyrian, and other peoples will be a very important development both for Syria and the wider Middle East. Our call for people to return from Europe, Turkey, and elsewhere will be possible once a democratic constitution of Syria is declared. Our view on the Kurdish-Turkish conflict that has gone on for nearly a century, a century excuse me, is clear. We've been developing a democratic solution of the Kurdish question since 1993. Our stance, as seen in the 2013 talks with the Turkish nation-state, held in Imrali, expressed in the Nuraz Declaration as we enter the dialogue process, is today more important than ever. We reinforce this stance in the seven-point declaration we put forth in 2019. We insist on the need for social reconciliation and a democratic negotiation to replace the culture of polarization and conflict. Nowadays, problems can be solved not with physical tools of violence, but with soft power. Under favorable conditions, 
I could set up the moves to eliminate the conflict within a week. As for the Turkish state, it is at a crossroads. It can either continue on its path towards unraveling like other nation states in the region, or enter into a dignified peace and a meaningful democratic solution. Ultimately, everything will be determined by the struggle between the parties. The success of the struggle waged by the Kurds through the politics of peace and democratic politics shall determine the end result, and freedom shall prevail. Yeah, so obviously this dude's amazing and very gifted writer, but as he rightfully points out, like the Kurds approach to how they're doing things and being creating this social, you know, almost nationless state that they want for the rest of um, you know, Syria and Turkey wider has enabled them to do things like virtually defeat ISIS, which is amazing because they actually can band together across, you know, different lines and come together as, you know, a people that are not fighting for one specific area or just their own, you know, their own cultural establishment. It goes beyond borders. Yeah, it's about, you know, it's a humanitarian philosophy at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's amazing to see someone speak like that. And the Kurds are, you know, one of one of the greatest, you know, shining bastions of, uh, you know, democracy working. Yeah. And, but, and obviously we should point out we've done, especially in recent history, everything to fuck over the Kurds. Um, and it's undoubtedly in part because they are trying to do something like this. And just a, a side note before you guys take, take it. Um, imagine Erdogan writing this, the, the leader of Turkey. <laughs> who's a, a thuggish goon, like, yeah, Un- yeah, unimaginable. <laughs> yeah. And um, another thing to point out is just in, a, in, in recent history, how we've portrayed the Kurds, uh, and, especially, yeah. and especially coming from um, right and conservative-leaning uh, figures, um, we, the, we've seen them as this, like, this evil militant like very like hyper aggressive um marxist movement that is just like terrorizing the region almost and they always bring up um how they're just like how they're how they're killing people uh leaving leaving out the crucial piece of information that the people that they're killing is isis and and just defending themselves from turkey's aggressive government coming to try to fucking neutralize them as well right Uh, but just it's an, it's just another it's another piece of the US the US's importance in uh, in the region of the Middle East and um how we shape the narrative here at home and how it affects um everyone's but mostly just like uh like uh relatively uninformed people that stick to uh, one or two of the one or like two of the mainstream um media outlets and excuse me um and just uh, how easy we feed them this information, and they're just like, "Oh, yep, this is how this goes." The Kurdish are uh, slaughtering people. It must be bad, even right. though we don't take into account. Let's, that, let's not listen to their leaders. And yeah, let's let's not let's not look at who they're actually killing. Let's just let's make these clickbaity headlines yeah. to uh, leave people more uninformed than they would have originally been if they went and looked for this stuff themselves. Um, before we we you know get out of here. Michael or Carlos, do you want to add anything writ large or to the international view or anything? 
I think you guys covered it. You guys sent the Michael, you Okay, cool. Um, I guess we're going to be getting on out of here pretty soon. Yeah, um, really quick. I want to thank everybody who stuck stuck by. It's, uh, it's 12.30 at night. We went on a little longer than we wanted to. Um, but still, thank you to everybody who stayed. Um, Partly, we got, every, we got through everything. Yeah, we got through everything. Um, our alerts are a little buggy, so if anybody dropped follows or anything like that, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, we're gonna fix that as soon as we can. Get that into the next uh, next episode. Yeah, next it's gonna, Wednesday. It's gonna take a little. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, working, we're working through the kinks. It's only our second episode, but uh, most, us, most, most important, you. most importantly, you guys staying with us is super awesome, and it uh, it helps us. It really like uh, knowing that people are interested in this stuff, especially in our local area. Uh, yeah, it's super and cool. As we go on, we're gonna cover more local stuff, obviously. And yeah, and have want, people on. Yeah. So uh, please stay with us, stay followed, uh, keep supporting us. We're going to return it to you guys from Ruski, Jake, and I. Uh, we, thank we thank everybody. Everybody, please enjoy your night, get good sleep, and let's wake up and uh, keep punching up, everybody. We're going to take punching, it. Boys. Yeah. Again, thank you, everybody, and we'll uh, see you next Wednesday. Love you guys. Bye. Love you guys.